Welcome to the resource room. I'm Amanda, the blogger and TPTer behind the Primary Gal. As a special education teacher, you are always supporting others, students, parents, general education teachers. But who is supporting you? That's where this podcast comes in. It's my mission to give you the help and support that you need. I'll be sharing my tips, tricks, research-based strategies, and professional development. I'm here to help you grow and learn as a resource room teacher. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode number five. Last week, I feel like I really threw everybody into the deep end and started talking about visual and auditory perceptual disabilities. And I hope that wasn't too overwhelming. I know that was a longer episode, but today we're going to take it kind of one step further. And while still keeping that auditory and visual component in mind, we're also going to talk about motor and spatial difficulties that we might see in our students. First, we're going to talk about motor perceptual disabilities. And so I like to just clarify that some of us are new to special education. Some of us have maybe heard some of these terms or you could infer what that means. But a motor perceptual disability is basically where somebody has a difficulty coordinating what their eyes and what their hands are doing. So we might see this in students who have difficulty holding a pencil, moving their pencil, using a crayon, coloring within the lines. They might seem very uncoordinated and it really is a difficulty between what the eyes are seeing, the brain is processing, and then what our hands are doing from there. So now that we have a good understanding of what that motor perceptual disability is kind of at its root or at the, the basic level, now let's talk a little bit about what we might see in our students and then how can we help them from there. So the first thing that you might see in your students is that they have trouble writing in a straight line. So if you think about the student who they start in the right spot and then slowly they're going downhill or slowly they're going uphill, their brain is not telling them, write it uphill, write it downhill. They're not telling them that. They're not doing that intentionally. But where their brain is telling them to go and where their hands actually go, that planning part of their brain just aren't always connecting. So that results in writing uphill or writing downhill. And depending on what you're doing, that may not be the worst problem that they have. That's okay. Um, but if we're talking about we're doing a series of math problems and they're writing uphill or downhill and numbers aren't aligned and things are kind of getting off, then that's going to affect their ability to do that math problem or even just to visually look at and understand what's going on when things are not always written in the correct way. And so as usual, I'm going to offer a couple of strategies, a couple of things that you could do to help students with this difficulty. And some might be fitting in some situations and some may not be fitting in other situations. So the first is kind of that most extreme, not always possible, but there are times when we could just say, I don't want you to write this. I'm going to write this. Why do, if we know that, hey, we're testing their ability to do this math problem, but they're struggling to write things in a straight line, or they're trying to get everything in just the right spot, 
is them writing it really the most important thing to test at that time? So there could be times where we write things for them and then ask them to solve and actually do the math component of that problem. Now, that's not always possible. We can't write every single thing for every single kid all of the time. So that's where we then have to think of how can we have some strategies so that they can do it on their own. And so depending on ages, preferences, learning styles, all of that, maybe utilizing graph paper where students are writing one number in each box. You could have larger boxes, smaller boxes, whatever the case may be, but where they are able to write one thing and the graph, the graph paper is naturally going to line up or keep all of those numbers in a nice straight line. They're not going to go uphill. They're not going to go downhill because they're writing one box after the next. If graph paper isn't their, their preference or isn't available, maybe just doesn't quite work, even using a ruler to help keep their lines straight and they're writing above that ruler. And then after they finish that line, they slide their ruler down and they write above that line or, you know, write above the ruler there, slide the ruler down, write again. Those, those strategies would help kids keep things in a nice straight line. They're not going to veer up or down because they're writing with a ruler. They're writing with graph paper. So be mindful. Everybody might prefer something else. The ruler might also throw the, I can't get the ruler in the right place and my pencil in the right place. Now the ruler's in the way that could complicate it. But then graph paper might seem too immature. Maybe they don't want to use graph paper. Maybe that adds more lines, more confusion, more visual things for them to process. So you may have to play around. What solution is the best to help them write in a straight line? For some students, just being aware that that is something that they do that might be impacting their learning might be enough. For me, I think of some of our older students who are experiencing this and they don't even realize that other people don't do that. For example, I know there are so many things. I'm, I'm so OCD about so many things in my life and I don't realize that other people's brains do not work like that. So when somebody else does something, I'm like, oh my gosh, did you just? And they're like, oh my gosh, did you just? I don't realize that my brain works differently than theirs. And so when somebody points it out, then I'm more mindful of that. And so while we're not talking about being OCD and overly, um, you know, critical of every little thing, this is something that some kids may not realize they're doing until we point it out to them. And until we say, hey, we've got to make sure that these numbers are all in a straight line. If they start going uphill, we're going to lose some of these numbers. That's going to become confusing as we do the next step to this problem or whatever. And when we point it out, sometimes that awareness piece might be enough. Maybe not. But sometimes just them being conscious of it, them being aware of it, having to fix that mistake a couple of times might make them realize, ooh, I've got to be more mindful of this. And when I notice that I start to trail uphill or I'm going downhill, I've got to erase that one number and get it in place so that the next number doesn't go even further and further. So sometimes they students might need supports and they might need that graph paper or that ruler but in other cases, maybe all they need is to have that pointed out and not in a, you need to erase and fix this critical way, but more in a, 
hey, are you aware that every time you write this, it goes uphill? And how can we fix that? Another characteristic that you might see in your students is that they spend so much time, effort, and energy working on the writing piece of math that they forget what they're doing mathematically. So if we're thinking about, say, three or four digit addition or subtraction, and it seems like they know what they're doing, but they spend so much time writing that problem down or finding the answer, writing that down, that then they lose track of what are they doing because of that energy that was spent on writing. And so again, an array of things that we could do here to help them kind of get over this hump and be able to do the mathematics that is required of them would be, again, in kind of a spectrum-y thing here. So we could have students only solve problems that either the teacher writes down or that are in a printed book where it's already there, it's on a worksheet, it, whatever the case may be. For me, I noticed this problem a lot before I started using my math series. And with my math series, I, now everything is in a book and we just go through step by step by step, problem after problem after problem every single day. But in prior years, I was literally making up problems on the fly and I would be like, okay, 436 plus 215. And I would give them time to write it down and then we would work on solving it. And, and that wasted a lot of our time. And in all honesty, one student comes to mind wasted so much energy trying to get his numbers in the right place, turn the line paper sideways, all the things that can be done to help him was really overwhelming to him. And so then once I started using my math intervention and we already had the problems written down, we were able to spend more time practicing math and less time and energy spent writing down this problem, writing down that problem, writing down the answer. That gets very overwhelming and really is not using their brain power in an appropriate way to learn a skill. They're just kind of getting by writing down this, copying this, this is what she said to do here, this is what she said to do there, and they're always playing catch up, they're not learning the math associated with that. Now, all of that being said, I think it's still important to teach our kids how to write down what they're doing. I do find value and I do think that's important because what if they get to fourth grade or fifth grade or a middle school or whatever, and they have a teacher who is not going to give them every single problem written down, is going to require them to do that. So they need that balance. They need to learn coping skills. But also, if we are in the moment trying to teach and practice the skill, maybe we don't need them to write it down. Maybe we could write it down. So we also need some strategies then for how can we help them write down problems quickly and efficiently. And so in my mind, that starts out in kind of a more like I do, we do, you do model, or maybe that's just the way my brain works in general. So maybe I write down a handful of problems and then to, to get them started, to get them going. But maybe later in the math group or later in the school year, maybe I write down the first problem. Let's again, go to that addition and subtraction with regrouping. Maybe I write down the top number and ask them to write down the bottom number directly below. So I've written it and it's spaced appropriately, it's in my graph paper, it's in my line paper turned sideways, whatever the case might be, it's written nice and neat. 
And now all they have to do is look at my problem and attempt to take the numbers that I've written, say, on the board or from the textbook or whatever, and copy it under those three digits that I have already given to them. Now, as we know from the last episode, copying from the board, copying from a textbook, that could also be a challenge for some of our students. Um, but it's definitely a place to start. Only make them copy a portion of the problem instead of all of the problems. So again, in my mind, that's like an I do, we do, you do. I can do it all, which is what I said in the beginning. I can give you a printed worksheet or a booklet or we can go in the math book. I do all of that or someone else does all of that. That we do. I can do part. They can do part. Help them kind of lighten the load a little bit so that they're not spending so much time, effort, and energy on the writing. And that brings me to my last strategy. So I've talked about I do, we do. Now it's time for you do. So now it's time for students with this motor difficulty to write the problems on their own. And so I, I think it's important to have students have some of those other strategies that we've talked about using graph paper, using line paper turned sideways, using some of those. I think they're great. We need to teach them and give them time to practice using those. But my strategy here, if we're asking them to do the writing all on their own, is to give them grace, give them time, give them kind of the understanding that we know the writing piece of this is challenging for them but we're happy that they're trying. We're happy that they're doing it. And if that requires a little bit more time, that's okay. So to me, just giving them more time, more understanding when it is their turn to do it all on their own will go a long way in helping them feel comfortable. What may be obvious, but I wanna point out anyway, is that let's say you have a group of four students at your table working on two or three digit addition and subtraction. Not all four of them will struggle with this written piece. Maybe only one of your four will struggle with this piece. And so you might have to think, how am I going to differentiate for this one kid who I know the motor, that writing written piece is hard for them. And the kid across is more the auditory visual piece. What am I going to do for each of these students at the same time in that crammed 20 minute group or whatever the case may be, how are you going to make all of that happen and give that student that extra time that they need? Or how am I going to write down this problem for that student and accommodate another student with a different difficulty all at the same time? A lot of times I think people think students with disabilities, oh, they can go with Mrs. Wilp, they're all good, she'll give them what they need, they all need the same thing. Not at all. We differentiate just like a general education teacher does. Our students in a small group have so many varying needs and breaking them down and understanding, okay, this student needs this or that student needs that. I, I, I know it's obvious, but I do want to take time to point it out. Not everybody needs that extra time to write. Not everybody needs you to do the writing. So I don't want you to feel like, oh, she said I should only use printed books. I should only write the problem for them. No, some kids don't need that much help and support. For some kids, they're not wasting their mental energy on the writing piece, and they are ready to do the math. But for some of our kids, all that writing, they're spending so much time on the writing, 
their brain can't even wrap their mind around what is three plus two because they've just mentally exhausted themselves on other things. So be mindful of that. I feel like I stepped on my soapbox to talk about that, but just be mindful that our kids have different needs and not everybody needs you to do all the writing. Now, all of that being said, my last characteristic that you might see in students with this motor perceptual um, disability is that long problems for them will likely be hard. And they can be hard for a variety of reasons. It could be other things besides just that motor piece that caused them difficulty. It could be the writing. It could be the way that their brain is processing all of that information and just getting everything in all the right parts and pieces and where is this and where does that go? That will be difficult for them. And so I think it's important to realize those long problems are going to be hard and we need some things, we need some strategies in place to help them better understand how or better complete, I should say better complete long problems, okay? And so for me, I think that giving them some step-by-step, first we do this, then we do that, some visuals to go along with it would help them get through those longer problems. I also like to use some auditory cues or some questions throughout to help them process some of that long, hard, tiresome work. So for me, then maybe it's like, okay, put your finger in the ones column. All right, what is nine plus three? Help them break it into small pieces. Later, my kids will start saying the things that I say all of the time because it becomes so rote. It becomes so repetitive, which is good. But when it's a really long problem and they're struggling with the writing piece or they're struggling to visually process some of that information, they need some auditory cues to help them know where do I go? What do I do? What am I looking at? And so knowing that those longer problems are going to be difficult for them um, helps us kind of break it down into smaller, more bite-sized tasks for them to complete. And so that, in a nutshell, is a motor perceptual disability. And a lot of students who have motor perceptual disabilities might also have occupational therapy. And that helps them to kind of work on how can we get my hands and my eyes to coordinate and to work together? How can I overcome some of these things where writing is hard or spacing is hard? Um, and in addition to that, kind of as I transition from motor to spatial, um, a lot of students with spatial disabilities might also have uh, occupational therapy. And so some of the things that occupational therapists are doing could really benefit some of our students with motor and spatial weaknesses as well. And so a spatial disability is just that struggle to organize information that is presented visually and then even be able to manipulate or find patterns or change those patterns in their minds. And maybe this is a very poor example, but I cannot help but think the very first time I ever had to give the COGAT test at school, um, which we only give to like our kindergarten, second and fifth graders, which is a test for high ability. And I saw students struggling with folding paper activities. And so with that, it's all on the computer, which I do think makes it hard. But it's like, okay, if I folded this paper in half, what would it, you know, what object would it make? Or which of these would make this paper airplane and things like that. And I'm like, come on guys, how are we getting this wrong? 
Well, that's because that processing of information, it's given to them visually on the computer and they have to make sense of that. They have to manipulate that in their mind to see, oh, well, it would look like this if I folded this paper in half. That is very, very hard for some of our students. And so then when we think about math, which is very visual, we can see why our students might be struggling with this. So we'll dive right in to some characteristics that we might see in our students. And the first characteristic is that they are great at rote tasks, great at things that we do every single day. It's simple, it's basic, it's easy. They're always raising their hand, they're the top of the class. But then when you do anything that is kind of a little bit deeper, it's more practical, it's more of a word problem, oh, they're struggling. They cannot apply some of those rote tasks to more complex or real life situations. One strategy to help students would be to have them physically get up and act out whatever that word problem is or whatever that, that application of the skill is. Have them show it. We know that if we present it to them visually, that's going to be hard for them. If we're asking them to look at something and see, okay, well, I'm going to take away this or I'm going to add that, and they're doing it all in their head, that's challenging. But if we can have them physically get up and do it, give them these pieces, have them test out what they're thinking and see if that works. Sometimes because they are good at rote tasks, they might be able to add a couple of numbers and see, oh, wait, but we gave some away and our number got larger. Oh, that, no, that's not it but let them problem solve. Sometimes watching you problem solve in the same way could be a good way for them to see, okay, well, she did this and that didn't work. And then she tried this and that did work. Okay, so sometimes even the teacher doesn't get it right the first time. We've got to try this and try that and see what works and use some of those rote repetitive things and use that as their strength. They're good at those things. Now, how can we use those math facts that you're so good at to solve this word problem? I also think it's important to say, okay, I just told you they're good at rote tasks. They're good at doing the same thing every day. We have to do the same thing with word problems or whatever that practical real life application is that's hard. We have to find a way to incorporate that into our daily routine. Because if we know that they're good at counting by fives because we do it every day, they're good at doing their math facts because we do it every day. They're good at the calendar because we do it every day. Then guess what? Word problems need to be something that you do every day. And it needs to be a step by step by step. How do we do this? Then we do that. Then this. Then that. And I'm not saying that it's going to be hard or easy initially. But if we know that they're good at those rote, everyday, this is what we do tasks, then we have to find a way to make these more difficult things a rote, every single day task that they just get better at. I don't even want to say they get good. They improve. They get better and they start to have some understanding and increase their accuracy over time. So use their strengths. We know they're good at rote tasks. Let's use it to our advantage and try our best to make word problems as rote and as simple as possible. Students with spatial difficulties might also struggle with just the words that describe spatial things, such as first, next, and last. 
So if you're saying, which comes next? And we're talking about a pattern. Understanding what the heck does next mean? That's also something that in my mind as a teacher is hard to describe. What does the word next mean? First and last, a little bit easier. They want to be first in line. You want to be last in line. You don't want to be last in line. Those are a little easier to understand. But describing what comes next could be hard for students to understand just some of those words related to spatial things. Kind of going hand in hand with that is left and right, up and down, even north and south. We have adults who struggle with things like that. So even myself, left and right, I have to think, oh, left, okay, that makes an L, this is my left. Um, I'm ambidextrous, so even just saying which one do you write with does not help me at all. So left and right can be confusing, up and down. Things that describe space and location can be very, very challenging for students. And so to accommodate them or to help them kind of overcome this, I think we can have an array of different things that we can do to support them. The first I think is the most easiest, and that is to have different things around your room using these words, demonstrating these words. So they're seeing it all of the time and they start to understand, well, this is left and this is right. This is up, this is down. This is north, this is south, east, west, whatever. They can see those things in your classroom and reference them when they need it. They can see what is first, what's next, what's third, what's fourth, what's last. Some of those types of things that they can start to see in real life and then because they look at it every day when they need to understand what that word is or they hear it or read it or whatever they can reference that in your classroom so i think that's an easy one that we could quickly and easily do or maybe it's something you already are doing and now you just train them to oh left or right we need to look at the board which is it is it this side or that side or up or down which is it you know then we just have to teach them to use those tools that are in our classroom all the time. I also think there are so many games that you could make up on the fly that you could practice here or there to help them understand and practice these things as they come up. I am never going to be perfect at left and right, but in general, I think practicing that or realizing and using that, okay, which one makes an L strategy enough? Eventually, I begin to get the point of which is left and which is right. Um, now, still, when my husband says turn left or am I turning left or right and I'm looking at the, my GPS on my phone, I still have to think about it. But that's okay. With practice, we get maybe a little faster and a little faster. Another characteristic of students with spatial difficulties is forming numbers correctly. Now, at the beginning of the episode, I told you that this is very closely tied to visuals which we talked about in the last episode. So this again might sound familiar like, Amanda, you just talked about this. Forming numbers correctly. That was in the last episode. Well, guess what? It's coming back here again because some students with that visual, with lower abilities in visual things also struggle to form numbers correctly. And so again, we have to find ways to support them. Have visuals for them to copy. Let them spend a few minutes a day practicing some of those things. 
as I talked about in the last episode, there's a debate. Do we correct them? Hey, it's backwards. Do we not correct them? Because now they're going to think everything is backwards. I don't think there's a right answer. I think we have to give them some exposures. We have to give them ways to check themselves. Is it correct or is it not correct? Oh man, I put that one backwards. I've got to erase this one. That kind of thing. We know it's a problem. Let's give them some strategies and some tools so that they can begin to work more independently and self-check and use their resources. The last characteristic that I have for you, again, is spatial related, but still ties in with some of those visual characteristics that we've seen and heard. And that comes to aligning numbers and getting all the right numbers, all the right decimals, the fraction bars, everything in the correct place. And so we know that students are struggling with that Organ, you know, that ability to organize information that is presented visually, as well as things that they are trying to visually represent. And understanding what does that decimal mean when it's here versus what does that decimal mean when it's there? How do I know where to put things? How do I copy things correctly? All of that information is overwhelming and hard for them. And so it's important for us to know that those things could be potential issues and help them use various resources. Now, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I've talked about graph paper, line paper turned sideways, all of the things that we could be doing to help our students better organize information. And it's a work in progress, and it's something that we have to help our students do. I like to use frames or models or templates, whatever you might want to call it, but give them some resources that they can use to help them do that. So let's say, for example, we are adding two numbers with decimals. Maybe you have something that already has the addition sign, already has a line drawn, already has two decimals in place, and all they have to do is start plugging in numbers. Maybe if you're talking about fractions, the fraction bar is already there. Maybe you've already added the addition sign. Maybe you've already drawn the pictures. Maybe you've done parts or pieces where you've given them some model of now you just have to focus on one number at a time. Make sure you can get the right number in the right place. Now, I've mentioned this before, but again, here it comes. We oftentimes aren't aware that things are problems for us until somebody points it out or until we start seeing that, oh man, look, every single time I get this wrong because I copied it wrong or because I didn't put the decimal in the right place or because I don't understand what number goes on the top of a fraction or what goes on the bottom of a fraction. And they're making the same mistake over and over and over again. So give your students kind of that opportunity to become aware that that is a problem or that is a common mistake that they're making. And then we can go from there and help them begin to understand how to self-check, how to stop and ask for help, how to have someone ensure that they have copied things down correctly before they begin to work the entire problem. How frustrating would it be if you're trying to work a dividing a problem that asks students to divide two decimals and you've put the decimal in the wrong place or you've written down the wrong number or you've inverted two numbers or whatever that problem might be. How frustrating would it be if you work that entire thing and you get it wrong because of a simple error in the way you copied things down, not in the way you performed the math. And so teaching students before you embark on this 
three minute journey of doing this problem or five minutes to try to find the answer, let's first start by making sure we have it written down correctly and kind of training our students to write down three or four. Let me check them. Write down three, you know, then go solve them. Then write down three or four more. Let me make sure you're on the right track. That kind of thing. That It's okay. That is perfectly fine. You don't have to turn in a paper with 10 correct answers. It's okay to pause and say, hey, do I have this correct so far? Let kids slow down and learn that that is a, a strategy. That is a coping skill that is wonderful to have and use and employ in everyday life. Before I conclude this episode, I have one last strategy, but it's for you. I am not an expert in motor and spatial or in visual or perceptual, all all of those types of things. I'm not an expert, but this episode specifically with the motor and spatial awareness piece, I think talking to an occupational therapist would be extremely valuable. So my strategy for you is if you're seeing characteristics in some of your students, that are similar to what I mentioned, but maybe some of the strategies don't quite match up. I gave you my real life examples. Hey, I have a student who struggles with this. This is what I would do. I have a student struggling with this. This is what I would do. But there could be 15 other things that I haven't thought of because I'm not an occupational therapist. So I would encourage you, if you're seeing characteristics like this, Pull your occupational therapist aside when they're in. Mine, for example, comes in one day per week. She goes to multiple schools in our district. So when she's there on Thursday, I oftentimes have a post-it note with a student's name and what I want her to watch or, or whatever so that she can see and give me some ideas as to how I can help that child. So I encourage you to do the same thing. Find people who can help you, who can take a look at your students and offer some things for you to try. Also, I think sometimes using a little bit of common sense, like, oh, it looks like they're struggling with this. Hmm, what can I do to help? Um, A little bit will go a long way there. So I'll see you in next week's episode where we will talk about different types of memory and what you might be seeing in your students, some strengths and weaknesses, um, and then how you can help improve um, memory and those four different types of memory skills. So I will see you next week, my friends. Well, my friend, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to the Resource Room Podcast. I truly, truly love to help and support other special ed teachers. Because of that, I run a Facebook group just for us. Search the Resource Room and request to join. You can also check out my website, theprimarygal.com, for blog posts, pictures, and more information. Until next time, have a great week.